welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. One of the things that we try to do at this show is to make sure that we are giving context the appropriate uh, attention that it's due. That's one of the things that tends to get ignored very, very quickly. Uh, and unfortunately, it's one of the things that tends to get leveraged by all political parties to score the points that they want to score. One of the stories that we've been following for a little while that has been, we felt like missing quite a bit of context, is the conversation that's gone on around the person who was challenging Jason Nixon uh, in the nomination for the UCP. Um, and that gentleman's name is Tim Hoven. Tim Hoven was disqualified by the UCP for some older social media posts that, depending on interpretation, could mean a bunch of different things. So rather than speculate... We were very excited to be able to have a conversation with Mr. Hoven where we he explains himself in his own words. Now, I want to be very clear. The breakdown is not taking a position in one way or the other in regards to how things uh, played out or why things played out. But it is an important conversation to have because one of the things that we're seeing from political parties more and more is they're getting very, very good at weaponizing conversations uh, to the point where people don't look at what's actually going Going on, And we think that it's very important to take a pause, have those conversations, and try to find out what is actually going on. So without further ado, here's our conversation with disqualified UCP nomination candidate, Tim Hoven. So to, to sort of get started, who, if, if we can kind of start with a who is Tim, and, and it's Tim Hoven, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, Hoven. Okay, perfect. Yeah, who is Tim Hoven? Well, that's an interesting question. Tim Hoven's an organic farmer from uh, a little town called Eckville, Alberta. I was a municipal councillor in the uh, Clearwater County, and I was Reeve uh, for one of the four years that I served on municipal council. Okay. I'm a, uh, I, I, I don't know. How do you describe yourself? I'm a husband. I, got, I have eight kids. I run a farm that's been in the family since 1908. And uh, we've lived, we live on the original homestead. And we care passionately about this province and about our uh, our local community. Okay. What made you decide to seek the nomination for the the UCP against Jason Nixon? We've been. Uh, I'm just trying to think how to answer that without taking a half hour of the time just to, to just to do that. It was a lot of soul searching because I, I've been in touch with Jason Nixon ever since I was elected to municipal council, right? We would text back and forth. But talking with so many people who just felt like they were completely unrepresented by our current MLA, uh, people who were in desperate needs of, of help and support from their elected representative, and they got nothing. They phone calls are not returned, emails not returned. And uh, if there much discussion with my wife, we decided it was time to, to do something. Instead of just sitting back and complaining about the current leadership, both provincially and locally, it was time to stick my neck out and attempt to make a difference. Now, one of the interesting things about your nomination campaign is that it kind of seemed to, and please correct me if I get this wrong, um, but it seemed to, to some degree, dovetail with another campaign. Um, and I'm talking about the, the Take Back Alberta folks. Yes. 
Can you kind of walk me through what is your what is your connection or what was your connection to Take Back Alberta and how did that get to be a thing? Well, currently I am now that I'm out of the nomination race, I am working with Take Back Alberta to try to get as many people. Well, we were trying to get as many people to the April 9th event as possible, but now who knows what's going on with that. Um, but really Take Back Alberta and I, we just kind of had um, there wasn't any official working together. It was really, we both had a mutual goal. One of the things that we've talked about is how conservatives tend not to play. They, they don't play well with one another and they'll agree on 98% of the stuff. And then they'll split on the 2% of the stuff that they have disagreement. And we just said, we have to work together. Um, I've had many opportunities to talk with David Parker from Take Back Alberta. I don't agree with everything he says or everything he's done, but for the purpose of moving the UCP forward and moving the province forward, it was, uh, we had mutual goals. So we were working, uh, we were working in the same direction. So I've spoken at TBA events. We've had David Parker speak at a couple of our events that our nomination campaign posted, but there wasn't any official uh, linkage. Okay. So you were like, friends but not involved in a relationship is that was that would that be a safe way to say it? <laughs> yeah we'll we'll go with that right now okay perfect um, you know we had the common goal that jason kenny needs to go and so we're okay. working together for that purpose okay um now with the your nomination i would like to hear from your perspective how did you find out that the UCP was looking at uh, nullifying, rejecting, I'm not sure what the, the term would be. Disqualifying. There we go, disqualifying. How did you find that out? What did that process look like for you? Well, on February the 14th, I had, uh, that was the day the nomination opened. So I contacted the party and uh, received my application package. That night at about 1047, I got a text from Jason Nixon. And it was a strange text because it was just screenshots of my Facebook profile. Um, so it was a little strange. And as soon as that happened, I'm like, this is going to be a strange, strange month. Um, as soon as I got, uh, we started working on the application, started getting people, our team together. And immediately we started hearing rumors from contacts in Edmonton, how they're going to disqualify me. And uh, we heard a bunch of different rumors, but consistently with everything, oh, they're going to disqualify you. And then I believe it was March, I'm trying to, March 7th, I just received an email that you've been disqualified. It was very interesting. Um, I should pull up a calendar so I can get you the right dates. We were at an event on Monday evening, and we got a phone call that people who we had signed up for the membership race who had never been a member of the UCP before were getting emails from our, uh, our opponent, our opponent's team, asking them questions from the UCP. Well, the only way that they would have those numbers, unless they were just opening a, the random phone book and calling people, was they had access to the membership list. So our team, we worked very hard and put a lot of pressure on the party to get our nomination. Our, our, our membership list, excuse me, because that's, you know, that's the gold in the race. You need to have the list of members. So about a day of back and forth on the phone and in emails, we finally got it. Uh, we spent a day going through it. So they, I was, ex I was good enough as a candidate to get 
that membership list. And about, uh, we had it one full day. And then the next morning after that, we were disqualified. So I just want to make it perfectly clear. Um, when you submitted your nomination papers, Jason Nixon sent you a text right away that included pictures from your Facebook profile. Yes. What were those pictures? Oh, it was, uh, I'd have to look, but the mo- just different posts I'd shared. I'd shared something that Todd Lowen had said a couple of days before. So a lot of that, um, a lot of the pictures were just of Todd Lowen's post on my Facebook profile page. Okay. Okay. Now, one of the things, actually, before I do that, let's, let's, let's come at it this way. What were the reasons that you were given by the UCP or, or were you given any other than just a, your disqualified email? What were the reasons that you were given for your uh, nomination being disqualified? It was the social media posts. It, well, it wasn't even the social media posts. It was social media that I was on. The number one concern they had was that uh, back in 2015, I had set up a gab profile. You know, this was when Trump was running for the Republican nomination and Hillary was his opponent. And I, I forget the whole process, right? It was seven years ago, but I'd signed up for a Gab profile and then it pops up people to follow. And because Gab was pro-Trump at the time, I think that eight or 10 people it showed were all pro-Trump people. And I just clicked like, 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 so you have some people to follow, some content to see. And then I rarely went back on that Gab site, maybe once a year. I think there were four posts in total on it. And that was one of the reasons they disqualified me because I was on a site that white nationalists have, have been associated with. Couldn't, I mean, in, in, in objective fairness, couldn't the same thing be said about Facebook? Well, the same thing could be said about you, Nate, you're associating with the white nationalists. You're going to get banned. All right, well, let's get that out of the way right away. Are, are, are you a white nationalist, Tim? I am not a white nationalist. The funniest okay, well, thing that happened after that came out is all these people who were kind of sitting on the fence, you know, they're on the fence about Jason Kenney. Yeah. And all of a sudden they, they saw that in the press and the cognitive dissonance started to kick in. And they're like, well, we know Tim. We've known Tim for 25 years. And then all of a sudden Jason Kenney is saying this about him. And it just totally reaffirmed in their minds that Jason Kenny is a liar. Okay. And then so it was a question of how deep does that corruption go within the party? Yeah. Uh, well, we're certainly seeing some interesting conversations about that even today. Uh, yep. the, one of the old Wild Rose guys, Veter, shared a video where they're letting some pretty serious and weighty accusations against how the UCP experienced their, their numbers bump. But I want to talk about some of the things that the the UCP cited specifically, because one of the goals with this conversation that I have is, I mean, we had a conversation with uh, John Carpe a while ago because um, he had said some things. He had claimed they were out of context and we wanted to give him the opportunity to provide some context. He ran away. Um, but, uh, I want to kind of do the same thing with you today. So we've already kind of touched on the, the, the white supremacist thing. Um, do you hold, Oh, sorry. It was a white nationalist, not a white supremacist, right? Okay. So I guess I have to ask the question. Are you a white supremacist? No, I'm, I'm neither. Okay. 
do you hold uh, any any racist views at all that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. But if you ask Jason Kenny, apparently I do. And we're going to get to that in a sec. Um, one of the other one of the other accusations that was leveled against you by members of Jason Kenny's team is that you have uh, you hold homophobic views. Um, homophobic views. Okay. Um, do you hold any prejudice towards the LGBTQ2S plus community that you're aware of? I do not. Okay. Um, so with those two things, the reason why I wanted to get into those okay. two things specifically, and I think that I, I read your uh, appeal to the UCP, yes. uh, and I, I find it fascinating that their response was nobody put a motion forward. So it wasn't even yes. that, that they, they had the conversation. They just decided not to have the conversation, I guess. Um, the, a lot of the accusations seem to be leveled based on social media posts that have actually been shared by somebody who works for government, who's currently on a leave of absence to work on Jason Kenney's campaign. Uh, yes. And I'm talking about Chad Hallman, who yes. by a cursory Google search, I'll say, appears to be the son of none other than Jason Kenney's old campaign manager, uh, Alan Hallman. Um, so that's fascinating, I think is a good word to use there. Um, some of the posts he said, I just want to give you a chance to sort of provide some context on or clarify your feelings. So the, the, the big one that seems to have been the source of a lot of the racism accusations stems from a tweet that you put up in 2016 uh, okay. where you, and I'm going to quote the tweet here, whatever happened to those native kids with the weird rash? Now, I, I, where did that come from? Back in, you know, I haven't been able to find the original photo that started that, but during the election campaign between Trudeau and Harper, the Trudeau campaign got a picture of, and I believe it was from Northern Manitoba, some native children, like indigenous people who had a very bad skin rash and they were blaming Harper for it. And the campaign went on and Trudeau won the election. And then after the election, I was sitting down at my laptop and I just, you know, had a thought, whatever happened to those kids? And I put it out on Twitter. And in the end, what had happened, and I'd, I'd looked for this online for evidence to back me up, but I couldn't find it, I'll be honest. It was scurvy from poor nutrition. And as soon as that, well, as soon as the election was over, all of a sudden, Indigenous issues went back off the front burner to wherever Trudeau put them, and they were invisible again. So that's what that tweet was about. Now, okay. I probably should have used a better word than native, but like I said, it was just a, it was a random thought that entered my head then ended up on Twitter, which is what I believe most people actually use Twitter for, at least back in the beginning. And I got on Twitter back, I think in 2006, 2007, uh, back when you would type something into your computer and it would go out to people's cell phones as a text. So, yeah. 
Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there were certainly, when I read that tweet, the way that I interpreted it was, I know that there were, back in 2016, there were quite a few news stories. And unfortunately, a lot of these issues haven't been rectified. I think that's important to highlight. Um, but there were quite a few news stories about black mold issues in uh, northern Canada. So Northwest Territories, Nunavut, from houses that were not uh, built to exist in the climate that they do. And that was causing all kinds of respiratory issues and, and dermatological issues. Um, so that was, that, was, that was one of the ones. One of the other ones that's been cited by a, another good friend of, of Mr. Kenny was a Facebook screenshot of an exchange where you were talking about GSAs. Um, so the, when we're talking about GSAs, just for anybody who's not familiar with our audience, which would be surprising, but just in case, uh, we're talking about gay-straight alliances. Now, this is a topic that got a lot of misinformation going into the 2019 election, uh, and this was actually one of the reasons why we spoke to Mr. Carpe way back when we did, because there was a lot of false information that was introduced into the provincial conversation by his organization that was later rejected from court. So, um, that being said... Let's start with what is your broad approach? What are your broad thoughts on GSAs? And then we can talk about the, the post in particular. Well, I guess my first thought is that life is very short and people need to do what they can do to have the best possible life possible. Okay. And we don't need um, government or any institutions telling us how we should live when we need to make that decision for ourselves. My concern with the GSAs though, is when you have parents being removed from the discussion of, of, uh, of their children's lives effectively, right? We don't have to, well, we'll go back to the residential schools in the, in the First Nations. As soon as parents are removed from that equation, um, you can see how the federal government said, we're going to send the RCMP and we're going to take these kids, we're going to put them in institutions, we're going to raise them the way we want to raise them. As soon as parents are removed from that discussion, that is when you start to have abuse taking place, right? And so in terms of GSAs, I'm totally fine with them, but I don't think parents need or should be excluded from that discussion. Okay. Now, the counterpoint that I have to throw up there um, is when we're talking about the, the parents being removed from the discussion, to, to be clear what the rules were going into to 2019, there were no rules that if a kid wanted to self-disclose to their parents that they had decided to attend a GSA, an after-school club in effect, um, that uh, there was nothing that was preventing that kid from saying, hey, mom and dad, I really want to support these kids in my school, so I'm going to this thing, or hey, mom and dad, um, uh, we need to have a talk because I've realized some things about myself. There was, there was nothing that was preventing the kids from having the conversations from the parents. And the, the concern that I think that a lot of people had about the GSA piece was that, unfortunately, and the, the statistics bear this out unquestionably, LGBTQ2S plus kids who have parents that are um, opposed to LGBTQS plus being a thing... Uh, are disproportionately at risk of abuse. They're disproportionately at risk of being kicked out of their homes. And right. so 
I guess the, the question that I would put back to you on the, on the GSA piece is if a kid knows that if they tell mom and dad, hey, by the way, I'm gay, whatever the case may be, that mom and dad are going to say, get the hell out of our house. How, how do you protect that kid while still making sure that they're getting the supports? Because, I mean, the, the, the fundamental argument that I always go back to with the GSA piece is we have child protective services for a reason. Right. There are crap parents out there. I'm they're not totally saying all are. parents are crap parents by any stretch of the imagination, but there are some. So yes. how, do you, how, do you, how would you navigate that problem? Why don't we start with a few easy questions, Nate? You know what? It's, it, it's a tough issue. Yeah. But, you know, because people need to have the right to choose what they want for their lives. Yeah. And I think, you know, in 20, I think people's understanding of, uh, of this issue has grown a lot in the last seven years. I'm sure mine has, right? We're not, uh, not a static Facebook post that, I put on Facebook seven years ago and, and people have to have the ability to choose. I know parents views have really changed a lot about this. You can look at even how mainstream churches, their views have changed over the last seven years. It comes down to, we have to let people choose what they want for their life. We need to protect kids from bad parents, but we also have to protect kids from like getting back to the residential school issue. We have to protect, children from bad institutions as well. So it's a, a difficult line to navigate. And I don't believe we're ever going to get it 100% right. It's always going to be tweaking and adjusting and trying to make it more fair and balanced as we go forward into the future. But there's no, there's a lot of bad ways to navigate it, but there's no one right way to navigate it forward. Okay, perfect. That's a perfectly reasonable answer. Um, and one of the, you, you raise a very interesting point because one of the things that I wanted to, to touch on in this conversation is we have seen examples of racism inside of Mr. Kenny's government uh, with people that he's chosen to hire, uh, with people that he's chosen to use as speechwriters, with people that he's chosen to, uh, I don't know, write an entire social studies curriculum. Um, those, those, are, those are real things that have happened. And the defense that Mr. Kenny has used has been, well, their views have evolved. And that's where I really want to sort of get to the crux of the conversation with the eight minutes that we have left. Um, but it seems like that your nomination was disqualified on the basis of posts that are, in some cases, almost a decade old. Um, and your saying that in most of those situations, your views have evolved. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Um, that is a defense that Mr. Kenny has used for not only his staff, not only for people he's hired to write curriculum, but actually for himself. Because going back to the whole Charles Adler uh, situation where Mr. Kenny was invited to apologize for the choices that he made towards the LGBTQ2S plus community in San Francisco, uh, he refused to do that. Uh, he's, he, he said, well, you know, Charles, my views have evolved. And, and that was, to him, an acceptable stance. How do you, what's your take on that? Like, on one hand, it seems like Mr. Kenny's saying, if I like you, if, if you're not trying to run against me, 
uh, or the guy, the people that I like, then views have evolved is an acceptable argument. But if you're, if, if I don't like you or you're running against somebody that, that I'm, I'm besties with, then I will, I will, I will not accept that argument. What's your, what's your take? Nate, the, the whole reason I was disqualified, you know, that this whole document here with my, um, my appeal letter, um, it, it was a way to get me out of the nomination race because I, I and my team had sold enough memberships that we were going to get people out and we we're going to take out Jason Nixon. And that was something that Mr. Kenny could not do. It seems like I mentioned earlier how I received the membership list. How could they have given me the membership list if I was such a nasty, horrible candidate um, that, you know, 56 hours later, they disqualify me? Didn't they know that before? They were weighing their options. They were trying to figure out what's going on. How do we get rid of this guy? And when they saw we had the numbers to take out the, the most important cabinet minister in the province, that's when they acted to disqualify me. They knew about all those posts. I had put all my social media profiles on the page in the application. They waited or they had to wait until they, no, they didn't have to wait. Let me choose my words better. They only acted after they knew we were going to win, right? Because okay. if we would have sold 20 memberships and, it would, and Nixon would have beat me at the poll, they wouldn't have done anything. It was only when push came to shove and they realized that a very important person in Kenny's cabinet was going to lose that they acted. And you could look at the same thing with Jody Gateman down in Carts and Sixica. Same thing. She maybe didn't sell as many memberships as I had, but Mr. Kenny went down there for, I think it was three days before the disqualification to see how things were, get his own feet on the ground. And perhaps he realized that Jody was going to knock off his number two guy as well that they had to act. Listen, I, I think Kenny believes he made a mistake by letting Brian Jean's nomination stand. And he couldn't have uh, Brian Jean and then Tim Hoven and Jody Gateman all in positions to run in the next election and lose his number one and number two guy. Okay. It, was a, it was a political hatchet job. And I mean, to that point, the, uh, a local media organization, well, they're journalists uh, here in Calgary called The Sprawl just released a story this weekend where they sort of detailed the, I'll say, complex history of uh, Mr. Nixon. And I have to be honest with you, if, if I am to, and this is my personal opinion, I'm not speaking for anyone else on the show, this is just me, but if I was to compare some of the, the social media posts that I think context is so key to interpreting um, against, I don't know, saying, bring your wife over and I'll service her, or um, I'm going to manhandle this guy in a sec. I mean, these are, these are not open to interpretation. These are, these are, these are matters of public record and more. I mean, the whole, the whole piece with the university and him continuing to collect a salary when he wasn't doing the work anymore. There's a lot of, there's a lot of very important questions that come out of that. And none of those things, despite being part of public record are being used to in any way call Mr. Nixon's character into question by the party. And I think that that the crux of that is to me the the fact that it is politically expedient for Jason Kenney to get rid of you. It's not politically expedient for Jason Kenney to get rid of Mr. Nixon. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I, I don't disagree with your opinion, 
right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's who you know, and it's what you're going to do for the, the United Kenny Party, not the United Conservative Party. Okay. I know you only have a couple minutes left, so I want to get through the last couple of questions really quick. Okay. Um, there's been a lot of speculation as to what the Tim, Tim Hoven's electoral future is going to look like. Are you considering running as an independent? Are you considering, if Brian Jean, I mean, there's, there's a lot of rumors going on about Brian Jean might start his own party, depending on what the results of the leadership race are. Would you run for the, the we called it on one of our lives, the Brian Jean I Love Cheese Party, because we don't know the name yet. Would you run for that party? Right now, I, well, let me go back a step. I had planned not to make any decision until after April 9th. I wanted to see what happened to Mr. Kenny. Um, but, you know, everything's up in the air now. Now that the lawyers have started sending letters to get involved, um, are we even going to have a, a mail-in ballot? Is it going to be taken to court and end up in the lawyer's hands for eight months? And then there will never be a mail-in ballot. There will not be a leadership review. I've been approached by many people to run as an independent. I've been approached by uh, some other people with just some feelers as to what I'm thinking about doing. Um, I know there are many people in this area who do not feel properly represented by Mr. Nixon. And it's my hope that I'm going to be able to represent them somehow into the future. What that vehicle is, I honestly don't know right now. Okay, that's fair. Um, I have one more question just for sort of setting the record straight. Have, okay. have you ever shot a wild horse? I've never shot a wild horse and I've oh. never, I've never been charged with assault either. Perfect. I just wanted to, as, as we're, you know, the whole point of today's conversation is to set the record straight. I figured I might as well set it as clearly as I possibly could. Tim, is there anything else that you'd like people to hear? Is there anything else you'd like people to know? I, I, you know, it's getting back to that whole social media thing. Social media is a, a new disruptive technology that when it started back in 2006 and 2007, that time span, no one knew what it was. It was a fun way just to get online and share a few things. And now that we're 15 years past that origin point, um, we have to be so careful how we tread forward because we're going to have a whole generation of people who are going to be excluded by the excluded from the political process. If we keep going down the path we're on, right. Um, you know, my children have grown up on social media. They've had their Facebook pages. They've got more accounts than I know right now. And that's just not my kids. It's, it's every kid in this country. And we are going to have a political class who run the country, who've never done anything, who've never said anything. They've remained invisible and silent so they can rule over us. And, and we cannot have that. The way to, to solve bad democracy is to have more democracy. And we need to make sure that people are not excluded from, from the political process because they did something stupid 15 years ago, right? That does not bode well for our country when we are excluding people. Right. You can see it happen with the trucker convoy. We had people who were who were not being listened to, who were having their views discounted by both federally, the federal government and the provincial government. And they they didn't know what else to do but to protest. And in the end, it came down to violence as the police were clearing out the streets. We have to change how we understand this political process so we can make sure that every voice is listened to, even the voices that make us uncomfortable. Right. Um, we, we're all on the same team, ultimately. 
and we cannot be alienating people on our team. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm personally a big believer that the, you've touched on an important point. I think that they're, you know, one of the reasons why we see people purging their social media all the time is because they're worried about, well, what happens if that gets taken out of context or what happens if that group sees that? And I think that the only way really forward to navigate that is to give people the opportunity to either clarify what their positions were, what their intent was, uh, and whether or not they still stand by those things. So I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation today. Um, and it's, I'm, I'm going to be watching very closely, uh, what, what you do over the coming weeks and months. Well, Nate, thank you for the opportunity to come on here and explain myself. It's, uh, you know, it has been a challenging week to see your name or challenging couple weeks to see your name smeared through the press. Um, but the truth is going to prevail, right? And we, that's the goal. That's why we have debate. That's why we need to talk about these things. We need to have discussion, however difficult those are but we got to move forward into the future. Okay. Well, I think, I think everybody could probably agree on that. Okay. And that's it for another episode of The Breakdown. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here, we would ask that you consider signing up to be one of our Patreon sponsors at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab. The bottom line is that a big part of the reason why we're able to produce the kind of content that we do is because of the support that we receive from our Patreon supporters. So if you're willing to give up a fancy cup of coffee a month, you can sign up at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab to help us continue to try to produce the kind of content that we do. We want to say a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. We also want to th say a big thank you for everybody who took the time to listen to today's episode. And we want to say a big thank you to everybody for simply being engaged in the political process because that is something that we are desperately, desperately missing. So to everybody who listened, to all of our supporters, Thank you.